This morning we're going to be looking at a series of paradoxes. No, not a pair of deuces, a paradoxes. A paradox. It's a set of seemingly absurd or contradictory statements or terms that actually teach a valuable truth. So there's an apparent contradiction, there's an apparent absurdity, but nevertheless, truth remains. Truth abides in these statements. Let me give you a few examples of paradoxes. Socrates has a famous one. He says, if I know one thing, it's that I know nothing. That's a paradox. If I know one thing, it's that I know nothing. It's a statement of humility. Here's another one. You have to spend money to make money. You have to spend money to make money. Here's another one. This is the beginning of the end. Those things seem to be intention, they seem to be contradictory, and yet there's a truth that you can see and trace within these paradoxical statements. Well, the Bible is filled with such paradoxes. Paradoxes catch our attention, they grab us, they make us think, they're memorable. And Jesus was fond of using them, as was the Apostle Paul, or throughout the Scriptures, really. Matthew 23, 11, Jesus says, The greatest among you shall be your, what? Servant, slave. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Matthew 20, 16, So the last shall be first, and the first last. That's a paradox. How can that be? This seems to be at odds with each other and yet it is true and it makes you think. 2 Corinthians 12.10, the Apostle Paul also uses paradoxical language. He says, when I am weak, then I am... Right, you remember it. It's a paradox and it's true. It's in our weakness that the Lord makes us strong. In our text this morning from John 12, Jesus shares with us several paradoxes of the cross. The paradoxes of the cross. Conflicting realities, conflicting truths about the cross that seem to be at odds with each other and yet are true and communicate to us an important reality. In John chapter 12, it's the time of Jesus' Passion Week during the great feast of Passover, and Jesus is in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is teeming with pilgrims who've traveled in from all over Israel and indeed all over the world for this great feast. In John chapter 12, verses 12 through 15, Jesus enters Jerusalem on the back of a young donkey in fulfillment of prophecy and to the cheers and accolades of thousands of bystanders who have lined the streets for his entrance. They waved palm branches and they shouted, Hosanna, as he passed by. They were cheering on the one whom they perceived to be a powerful force who could overthrow the Romans. And that brings us up to speed for our text this morning, which begins in verse 20. Let me read it for you. John chapter 12 and verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. 
These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am there, my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that communicates to us about the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the record of his life, the record of his death, the record of his resurrection, and the promise of his soon return. Lord, we pray in this passage this morning that your Holy Spirit would be present to teach us, to open our eyes and illumine our minds, to open our hearts to receive good gifts from you this morning. Lord, whether we are here today and we are far from God or whether we feel an intimacy with you, Lord, I pray either way you would do a work in our hearts. Show us Jesus. Show us Jesus. Lift it up. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. In this passage, in these momentous words uttered by Jesus, just days before he will be crucified, we're going to see together that Jesus reveals to us five paradoxical truths about the cross. Five paradoxical truths about the cross. Five sets of statements that seem to be at odds with each other and in contradiction and yet communicate truth. The truth about what Jesus did at the cross the nature of the cross, the significance of the cross. First of all, we see that Jesus communicates to us here that the cross is the height of divine glory. The cross is the height of divine glory. Now right away, that can seem a paradox to us. It should seem a paradox to us. The cross was a symbol and an emblem of shame, an emblem of suffering, an emblem of defeat, an emblem of judgment. How then can it be the height of divine glory? Well, let us look and see what Jesus says. To understand this 
passage better, we need to go back to verse 19 of chapter 12. Look with me there. John 12, 19 says, The Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. The Pharisees were using hyperbole here, another figure of speech, exaggerating by saying that the whole world was going after Jesus. And they weren't far from the truth. Yet they spoke better than they knew. For in verse 20, we read that there were Greeks attending the feast there in Jerusalem and they were asking to see Jesus. Indeed, the whole world was coming after Jesus. These Greeks, these foreigners, these Gentiles, these non-Hebrew speakers, they were going after Jesus. No longer was the interest in Jesus merely relegated to the Jewish nation, but there was Gentile interest as well. Greeks here refers not simply to those who were from Greece, by the way, but as a general term refers to non-Jews, Gentiles of all stripes. They were likely many Gentiles in Jerusalem at this time, many from foreign lands who would be in Jerusalem, some of them specifically for the feast, others on other business. But they were pilgrims attending this, the biggest of the Jewish feasts. Some of them would have been proselytes. They were full converts to Judaism and adherents to Judaism, but others would have simply been spiritually interested and curious outsiders. And they would have been allowed into the outer court of the Gentiles on the outskirts of the temple area. These Greeks are interested in what they are hearing about this Jesus. The, the streets are filled with talk of Jesus. He's, he's just ridden in and fulfilled prophecy on the back of a, a young donkey as he accepted and received praise from the people lining the streets and they shouted, Hosanna, save now. This is the time. They wanted to get in on it. They wanted a personal and private audience with Jesus. And so, finding one of the disciples, Philip, they inquire as to if and how they might be granted such an audience with him. So Philip tells Andrew, Andrew and Philip go and inquire of Jesus. Now the first item to note here is that John does not record for us the answer of Jesus to this request. We don't know whether Jesus met with them or not. We can't be sure. Or whether he simply never answered their question. Ultimately, the issue is secondary to John's purpose here. The great issue is that this inquiry by these interested Greeks acts as a kind of catalyst, a trigger for Jesus in his thinking, in his outlook. It's a kind of sign which causes Jesus to publicly announce that now his hour, the hour of his crucifixion, has indeed arrived. Up to this point, it's been clear that Jesus' hour had not yet come. John chapter 2 and verse 4, at the wedding of Cana, when Jesus said to his mother, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. 
The time of my glory, the time of my conflict, the time of my suffering and death has not yet come. John chapter 7, verse 30. When Jesus was in Jerusalem for another feast, the Feast of Booths, says that the Jews were seeking to seize him and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. The time wasn't right. The next chapter, John chapter 8, verse 20. Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. But here in chapter 12, the positive interest of these Gentiles, these Greeks, right on the heels of the rebellious rejection of Israel's religious rulers serves as a kind of sign, a trigger that Jesus' hour has officially arrived. He's been rejected by his own people. He's being sought out by foreigners. Jesus knows the time has come. Specifically, Jesus says that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be what? Glorified. Glorified. The Son is going to be exalted. The Son is going to be honored and magnified above all others. However, the path to this glory was through the shameful, debasing, excruciating crucifixion. We tend to think of Jesus' glory only coming at his resurrection or at his ascension or certainly at his second coming when he comes and returns in great power and glory. And that's certainly true. But Jesus' glory includes his death. In fact, the hour of Jesus' glorification includes the full package of events surrounding Christ's sacrificial work. It includes his death. It includes his burial. It includes his resurrection. It includes his public appearances. And it includes his ascension to the right hand of the Father. All of it is the hour of his glory. But the hour of Jesus' glory is kicked off in a most unusual way kicked off in the hour of crucifixion. And at times it is clearly, it is clear that Jesus is suffering and death which are primarily in view when he speaks of this hour of glory. And that's the case in these verses. It's clear that Jesus is pointing to his death, to the crucifixion, anticipating it and calling it the hour of glory that has now arrived. Jesus refers to himself here as the Son of Man. That's the title that is used many times in the Gospel of John as a designation of Jesus to himself and a reference to his suffering and death. He is the Son of Man. He is the representative of mankind, born according to our likeness and bearing our sin and judgment on the cross. John 3.14, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man in connection to his death. As Moses lifted up the servant, serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. John 8.28, Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Now the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified has arrived. 
Jesus, the Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God, is to be crucified. And a significant part of Jesus' hour of glory is found in his humiliation at the cross. How do I know that when Christ speaks of glorification here, he's including the thought of his impending death? Well, the very next verse, verse 24, clearly speaks of death. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... Likewise, verses 27 and 28, verses 32 and 33, all speak of death. Jesus is equating here his death with his glory. The cross is the divine height of glory. F.F. Bruce, the great New Testament scholar, says Jesus being glorified is not a reward or recompense for his crucifixion. It inheres in his crucifixion. It is built into his crucifixion. It's not something he gets as a prize when it's over. It's something that is part of it. It is glorious that the Son of God would give himself as a gift and a sacrifice for sinners like you and I. And it is glorious in God's eyes. Later in verse 28, Jesus prays that the Father would be glorified as he goes to the cross. And that voice is heard from heaven. A voice from heaven only speaking over words of praise over Jesus only two other times. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again is what the voice from heaven is, the voice of the Father. I have glorified my name through you throughout your life and I'm about to do it in an unparalleled way at the cross. At the cross, God the Father is glorified as he sends his son on a death mission to redeem a people for himself on the cross Jesus is glorified in an unparalleled way as he the son of man and the son of god gives himself as a sacrifice for a rebellious people the cross is the apex of divine glory for it is the central instrument in the redemption of sinners The Father is glorified in the Son going to the cross and the Son is glorified as he hangs on the cross. How is God glorified in the cross of Jesus? Well, on the cross, Jesus is displaying the very glory of God, the very grandeur of God. He's displaying the glory of God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son his dearly loved son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. On the cross, Jesus is displaying divine grace, mercy, compassion, patience, resoluteness, obedience. And the dis- both the display and the purchase of divine forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And at the same time, purchasing pardon and forgiveness for all who would ever believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 describes for us the glory of what was taking place on the cross. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is the glory taking place while Jesus hangs on the cross. It's the glory of redemption. It's the glory of God's love. The cross indeed was a tool of cruelty and shame, but for Jesus it was the place of highest glory. For he would be simultaneously fulfilling the Father's will and purchasing redemption for people like you and I. Look to the cross and see the paradox of shame and glory. Secondly, the cross is the source of life. Again, not hard to find the paradox there. The cross is a place of death. The cross is where the game ends. It's over. When the Romans put you on a cross, that was all. You're done. You don't come back from that. Jesus says the cross is a source of life. John 12, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus introduces a word picture here, a metaphor, a picture readily familiar to a farming society, a picture of a seed. A seed has to go into the ground and be buried over and die in order for it to produce life and fruit a seed has to go into the ground and die before it will ever produce that fruit and so it is for the son of man he is that seed that grain which must first go into the earth having died in order to bear much fruit and you and I as believers in Jesus Christ are that fruit We are disciples of Jesus Christ. We're being made into the likeness of Christ. A seed produces more like itself, right? Plant an apple seed, you're going to get, don't you dare say oranges. (laughs) Right, apples. That's how it works. The seed of Jesus goes into the ground, it dies, and it produces a bumper crop those who are being made after his likeness and one day will be like him for we'll see him as he is. Jesus is that seed which must first die in order to bear much fruit. Romans 5.19 says, for as through the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the Lord Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Through Jesus, we're made righteous. Through Adam, we're made sinners. Through Adam, we're all swept up in guilt, shame, and judgment. But through Jesus, through Jesus, we're made righteous. Through faith in him. I love what Pastor John MacArthur says about this. He says, the history of Christianity is but one long harvest yielded by the spiritual seed sown on Calvary's cross. 
History is but one long harvest of what God is doing through his son on the cross. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, then you're part of that great harvest of fruit of Christ followers. In the cross of Christ, we also see a pattern of what our lives will be if we are true followers of Christ. The fruit of our faith will show itself as we are the fruit of Christ's work on the cross, so his work in us will bear fruit. And that fruit in our lives is seen as we follow Christ. Verse 25, it's seen in the way of Christ in that it is the way of suffering. John 12, 25, he who loves his life loses it and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. It's the language here of love and hate. It's a Semitic way of not speaking in absolute terms, but in a sense of preference or of prizing. If by comparison, you don't hate your own life, then you don't really love Jesus. You're not really a follower of Jesus. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. It's a paradox. Your love for Christ is such that in comparison, it appears that you hate your own life. Why would you make the decision to follow Jesus when it's going to cost you? It might cost you friends. It might cost you advancement. It might cost you financially. It might cost you socially. That's what followers of Christ do. Even as Jesus deliberately took steps toward the cross of Christ because it would be fulfilling the Father's will for his life. Even so we take deliberate steps toward suffering because we love the Lord Jesus Christ. The way of Christ is also the way of service. It's not only the way of suffering, it's the way of service. John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me and where I am, there my servant will be also. Our love for self must be replaced by a love for another, a love for Christ that shows itself in service to him. No longer do we create idols out of all kinds of things in this world and out of ourselves. Now we follow Jesus Christ. We love him and serve him above all else. As servants of Christ, we identify ourselves with him and thus bring upon ourselves the same kind of rejection and persecution that he received. A slave is not greater than his master, Jesus said. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. The way of Christ is not only the way of suffering and the way of service, it is also, wonderfully, the way of salvation. John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the Christian's great hope. That we are accepted by the Father through faith in his Son. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we receive all the blessings in the heavenly places. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are accepted by the Father. The one who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. It's another way of saying you'll be honored by the Father. You'll be welcomed. 
into your new heavenly home. That's the paradox of the cross. In Christ's humiliation and suffering, there is exaltation and glory. And so it is in our own salvation. In losing our lives in this present world by believing on Jesus and confessing him as Lord, we gain eternal life in the world to come. By being dishonored by the world, we receive honor from the Father. Honor that is eternal life. And so we see the paradox of a cross that brings death, but in the end gives life eternal to all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. The cross, that emblem of suffering and shame and death, is in fact at the same time life-giving to those who trust in Christ. Third paradox The cross is the very purpose of the incarnation. Verse 27. John 12, 27. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. When any of us are born, we don't dream about one day, hopefully, we can die a horrid death. Hopefully the end comes with great difficulty and hardship and suffering. But that, in fact, is the very purpose of Jesus' incarnation. That is the very purpose for which Jesus was born. Jesus was born to die. And that's the paradox of the cross. Notice the total transparency of Christ in verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled. His soul is exceedingly troubled. He feels the constant presence of the crushing emotional weight of what lies before him. Yes, the physical suffering, but far more than that, the spiritual suffering as he who knew no sin throughout his whole life, always doing what was pleasing to the Father, and yet he who knew no sin on the cross became sin for us. The crushing spiritual weight of guilt and God's judgment poured out on the sinless Son of God. And he feels it. He anticipates it. And he's troubled by it. He's anticipating the ultimate rejection by his own countrymen. He's anticipating the beating, the reviling, the betrayal by his best friends. But most of all, the alienation that will come from his heavenly Father as he became sin on our behalf with the inauguration of the hour of Christ's glorification comes at the same time the hour of Christ's greatest emotional and spiritual travail. There's a sense of emotional dread, foreboding. And this sense of dread prompts Jesus to ask this question, what should I say, Father, save me from this hour? Let's scrap the mission, Father. Now that we're as close to it as we are, I think it's a bad idea. Let's come up with something else. Let's go with plan B. This is too hard. The cost is too great. The pain is too unbearable. The rejection too humiliating. The betrayal's too heartbreaking. Let's call the whole thing off. 
Jesus says here, doesn't actually say any of those things. He says, my soul is troubled, but should I say, forget it, Father? The answer, no. Of course not. Notice what he does say. But for this purpose I came to this hour. I was born for such a time as this. Jesus' purpose here overrides and overrules his emotional trepidation. A good lesson for us all. Rather than allowing his emotions to dictate the direction of his life, the choices he makes, the decisions he chooses... He forces his emotions to submit to his will. A very good lesson for us all. It's so easy to be led around by our emotions. But emotion is not a trustworthy guide to the right path. Emotions betray us. Emotions betray the truth. The statement of Jesus should also remind us of his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Mark 14, 36, Jesus was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. That's just a few days from now. So it's not a surprise that these same things are weighing on Jesus' shoulders and he's praying the same kind of prayer. In fact, it's entirely possible that Jesus' prayer here is not some kind of hypothetical prayer, what shall I say, but rather it's a genuine plea to the Father, a genuine prayer. Father, save me from this hour. And yet Jesus submits his own will to the Father in recognizing, no, this is the very purpose that you have placed me here. This is the very reason I was born. I'm fulfilling the divine plan cross was an instrument of death it was no one's ambition to be hung there no one among Jerusalem's high school students wanted to be named most likely to die by crucifixion no one and yet for Jesus this was his aim this was the very purpose his whole life was pointing to this was his mission he was born to die And that's the paradox of the cross and of the life of Jesus, the man who was born to die. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, and in order to save those who are lost, Jesus had to die. Fourthly, the fourth paradox, the cross ensures the world's judgment and the enemy's defeat. Verse 31. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now that Jesus' hour has come, the hour of glory, the hour of suffering, the hour of the cross, the hour when he'll be lifted up, now judgment has come upon the world. Now the ruler of this world will know defeat. The cross 
had always seemed like the end of the trail. It had always seemed like ultimate defeat. Anyone who was hung on a cross deserved to be there, or so it was thought. Anyone that was hung on the cross, their story ended there. But in fact, the cross was the instrument that secured and guaranteed ultimate victory. The cross was viewed as the ultimate sign of defeat, but for Jesus, it's the ultimate victory. That too is the paradox of the cross. For Jesus, defeat at the cross became victory. And for Satan, victory at the cross became his own defeat. Jesus outlines here in cosmic terms what will happen at the cross. First of all, he says the world is judged. Now judgment is upon this world. In the Gospel of John, the word world refers to the collective totality of fallen humankind in willful rebellion to God, the Creator. That's what the world is. The world in rebellion against God is now, Jesus says, at the cross, judged finally. By crucifying Jesus, they have rejected God's one and only Son. The one who's been attested to them by miracles, the one who's been sent by God, has been rejected by the vast majority of humanity. And to reject the Son, we know, is the equivalent of rejecting the Father who sent him. And so judgment is passed upon the world. Jesus and his cross serves as the spiritual dividing line between light and darkness, between faith and unbelief, between life and death, and between heaven and hell. What you do with Jesus, what you believe about Jesus, and whether or not you trust in Jesus has ramifications that will echo into eternity. Now judgment is upon the world which has reveled in the darkness and rejoiced in their unbelief. Christ has been ultimately rejected. And there on the cross as Jesus hangs, the world has been judged. Darkness covers the earth. The earth trembles. In that very act of crucifixion, the death sentence was being passed upon the world for its sin and disobedience against the God who gave us life. Not only is the world judged at the cross, but also Satan is defeated. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, Jesus says. Not only is judgment leveled against the world, but it is leveled against the ruler of this world as well. Satan here is referred to as the ruler or prince of this world, and he's referred that way in several places in the New Testament. Satan will be dethroned and cast out of his rebellious kingdom one day, once for all. Although it has yet to be fully realized, Christ can speak of it with such certainty as though this has already been accomplished. Satan's future is sealed, his defeat is total, and it is certain. 
And it all happened at the cross. What appeared to be Jesus' greatest defeat was in fact his greatest victory. And what appeared to be Satan's greatest victory was in fact the sealing of his own defeat. Although at the cross Satan would bruise Christ's heel, Christ most certainly crushed Satan's head. That's the paradox of the cross. Fifthly and finally, the cross serves as the beacon of hope for all. Strange beacon, the cross. A beacon of hope. As you would enter Jerusalem or any Roman, great Roman city, there would be those crosses with men hanging there as a sign and symbol of Rome's power and that if you cross Rome you will be defeated Jesus takes that symbol of judgment and that symbol of shame and that symbol of defeat and he transforms it and makes it a symbol of hope the cross is that same symbol of hope today It is hope to all those who are looking for hope. It is hope to all those who realize that their sins are too great to ever be made up by a few good deeds. It is a symbol of hope to all those who realize that they are far from God and that there's nothing they can do within themselves to bring themselves back to God. The cross is a beacon of hope to all who come to an end in themselves and cast themselves on God's mercy and grace provided for them in the cross of Jesus Christ. I don't know your story. I don't know your past. I don't know the sins you've committed. I don't know the the secrets that you hold. But I do know this, that there is grace greater in the cross of Jesus Christ than all your sins. We sing the song, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Oh, so much more. This morning, if you will recognize your sin and turn from it and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to be the sufficient sacrifice for your sin, God will accept you. God will open his arms to you And you will know what it is to be forgiven eternally. The cross serves as the beacon of hope for all. Jesus says here, and I, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Jesus is emphasizing here that he must be the one lifted up. He must be the one who gives his life. He must be the one who suffers. He must be the one who becomes the substitute. And I, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Countless thousands were crucified, but there was only ever one who was crucified who was sinless. There was only ever one who was crucified who was indeed the Son of Man and the Son of God. 
Christ has several times already used the language of exaltation to describe the moment of his greatest humiliation. And he calls it being lifted up. And that phrase there, being lifted up, works in two ways. It works in two opposite ways. And thus it's a paradox. Jesus is lifted up to suffering, to shame, to defeat. And in the same moment, Jesus is lifted up to glory, to honor, to exaltation, to victory, to redemption, to forgiveness, to eternal life. This is the paradox of the cross. Jesus lifted up. Jesus says that if he be lifted up, he will draw all men unto himself. What is meant here by all men? Does it mean that all men will be saved? All people will be saved? Is this statement of Jesus teaching some doctrine of universal salvation of all people? Is everyone going to heaven? Well, only if Jesus is totally contradicting himself. Remember, he's talked about judgment. The world is judged. Those who die in their unbelief, they are judged at the cross. Even as those who believe while they live are delivered and redeemed. No, Jesus is not teaching that all people are going to be saved. So what does Jesus mean when he says, I will draw all men to myself? He means people of all kinds, people of all tribes, people of all tongues, people of all nations. Remember, this whole discourse started because the Jews has rejected him and the Gentiles are curious and they want to know more. Jesus says, when I'm lifted up on the cross, I'm going to draw all kinds of people to me. This is another of the great paradoxes of the cross. The cross as the instrument of death and cruelty. The cross of isolation becomes a beacon of hope that gathers a host of people from all walks of life and all nations and all tongues and all tribes. They all find hope at the cross. Jesus offers salvation to you this morning through faith in his finished work. Doesn't matter your ethnicity, it doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter your color, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter the sins you've committed. The only sin that is unpardonable is the sin of unbelief. And as long as you remain unbelieving, the judgment of God hangs over your head. And the only thing that keeps you from meeting your maker is your next breath. That's why there's a sense of urgency in my words today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to believe. Today is the day to see the glories of the cross for what they truly are. Not a place of defeat and shame and dishonor, but a place of glory, a place of victory, a place of forgiveness that is available to you. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. His sacrifice was sufficient to forgive you of all your sins and all you need to do to receive that gift of salvation is to believe on Jesus Christ alone. Christian, 
look to the cross and see it for what it truly is, a place of glory, the place of the apex of divine glory. Look to the cross, Christian, and be lost in wonder, love, and praise. Look to the cross with all of its glorious paradoxes and find rest for your souls, hope for your future, and peace that passes all understanding. Whoever you are this morning, wherever you've come from, whatever is going on in your life, look to the cross and see Jesus lifted up for you. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for teaching us about your cross. Thank you for showing it in all of its glorious paradoxes. It's an unlikely symbol of glory and victory and forgiveness. And yet, how like you to choose a symbol of weakness and have that be the symbol of our strength. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for being lifted up and drawing all men to yourself. Thank you for including us in your great plan of redemption. We love you, Lord Jesus. Help us to love you more. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.